Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Ryan Curtis. Well, we've been musing of late that emerging markets and the U.S. bond market have been telling a very different story from U.S. stocks, and that at some point something had to crack. Well, it did, and the bond market won. Thus, our top story this morning is a fairly major sell-off on Wall Street. We'll have more on that in just a moment. In Hong Kong, one major player steps back and one steps forward. Lee Ka-shing sells a stake in a port terminal and Swire Properties will spend some $10 billion to redevelop Taiku Place. Well, that's what makes a market, and we'll take a look. We're pleased to say, by the way, that among our stellar guests this morning, we have Swire Properties CEO Martin Cubbon on this morning's program. First, here's a little tease of what's to come. The market is ready to go down. It's the way we like to say it, you know, in the markets. And it needed an excuse. And China provided some bad data this morning in terms of its investment and the potential of a stimulus. That is Jim Bianco from his own firm on why the market sold down. He cites weak data there from China, but Ukraine weighed in as well. We urge Russian Federation to pull back its military to stop the incursion of an independent country and to start a real dialogue, talks and negotiations instead of intimidation and waging the war. Tough language there from Ukraine Prime Minister Arseniy Yatsenyuk. Also some tough commentary from Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, and even the U.S. Secretary of State uh, John Kerry. And all of that talk about Ukraine drove bond prices higher. The Ukraine story might be more pushing the bond yields down uh, as a flight to quality. You're right. The bellicose language that's coming out of both sides from Russia and the United States makes it hard for investors to see what's the way out of this without it getting ugly. And there's a concern that it might just be that. Now, hopefully it won't get ugly and they'll find a way out, but it's getting harder with all the language that we've heard. And I think that's why you saw the big bond rally today more than in the stock market. Again, that's Jim Bianco from uh, his own firm, Bianco Research. And the bond market uh, did rally, so prices up, yields down. We saw the yield on the 10-year dropping from about 273 to 264. And also we saw a big uh, move up in yen, in the yen. So let's take a look at markets here in Asia as we get started, and then we'll tell you about our, our other guests coming up. The Nikkei down 276 points at 14,539. Bit of a sell-off, uh, 1.9% there down in Australia. Also down 1.3% in Seoul. The cost be down a little more than 1%. Here's how currencies are moving. The dollar is trading at 101.77 yen. So that's the dollar a lot weaker, the yen a lot stronger. Longer, and that usually means a pretty strong day of risk off in markets. The euro is trading at 1.386 US and the Australian dollar is at 90.27 cents. All right. So I should tell you about our guests and our featured segments this morning. We'll wrap up the NPC. We'll take a look at the impact on banks, on real estate and e-commerce. Joining us will be Frederick Ockvist, who's founder of China RAI. We'll take a look at Tencent and its new stake in JD.com. Also, Keith Pogson from EY, the firm formerly known as Ernst & Young, will be with us to talk about banks. And, of course, we already mentioned properties. Martin Cubbon from the Swire Group coming up in just a moment. First, the news flow, beginning with the Wall Street um, sell-off. The S&P 500 down 1.2% at 1846. The Dow was down 231 points. And we go back to Jim Bianco. He's not too positive on stocks. I've not been one that's been particularly enamored with the market. We had a 30% run-up last year, but we had nothing close to that in terms of earnings. 
And at best, the market is fully valued, and at worst, it's overvalued. It's definitely not cheap as a market right now. And so if you're going to buy the market now, you're buying a fully valued market, hoping for the economy to launch forward and take earnings with it to another level and push prices higher. I think that's a tall order. Secretary of State John Kerry warned that the United States and Europe might take very serious steps if there is no resolution on Ukraine. The Crimea region is preparing to vote this weekend on a separatist resolution. In some other news, former Bank of Israel Governor Stanley Fisher testified before Congress on the number two post at the Fed, which he's been nominated for. He said stimulus by the Fed must continue. At present, achievement of both maximum employment and price stability requires the continuation of an expansionary monetary policy, even though the degree of expansion is being gradually and cautiously cut back. Gold moved up to $1,372 an ounce, and oil is trading now at $107.39. So that's kind of the backdrop. A lot more news to tell you about, which we'll get to throughout the program. But we'd like to say good morning now to Martin Cubbin, Chief Executive of Swire Properties. Martin, good morning. Morning. So Swire Properties spending some $10 billion to redevelop Taiku Place. The redevelopment, not exactly new, but the price amount, $10 billion, that sounds like a lot of money, seems to show a strong commitment to Hong Kong. Yeah, we do have a strong commitment to Hong Kong. It's uh, been our home for over 100 years. Uh, we still have a lot of confidence in its future. Um, Quarry Bay is definitely our home. Uh, we have a great opportunity to, uh, to reposition Taiku Place. Uh, we'll take down three industrial buildings and replace them over the next six, seven years with two office towers. Uh, we'll also free up a lot of ground floor space, so we hope improving the, the quality of life for people who live and work in that area. So we brought you on to talk about the earnings as well. Swire Properties yesterday uh, announcing an 8.5% drop in underlying profit to $6.35 billion. Uh, how would you characterize the year? The maths are pretty simple, really. We uh, we had about a billion dollars less from residential sales because we have few apartments, fewer apartments to sell. Um, we had a five hundred million dollar increase in uh, in net rental income. Um, so, in terms of the core business, so that that sort of speaks reasonably well to it. Um, we do have more apartments to sell in two thousand and fourteen. Uh, Bill, to say how well that will go, but uh, right now we're quietly confident. And what is the forecast for this year? Uh, I'm afraid I can't give you a forecast. Um, as I said, we remain re- pretty confident about uh, our prospects, not just for this year, but going forward. I mean, uh, and the Taiku Place redevelopment's a part of that. Um, we do have quite a few apartments left to, um, to complete and to sell, uh, and we hope that should provide uh, reasonably strong earnings from residential sales over the next two or three years. Is that big um, Opus 11th floor flat uh, still available? And, uh, We're holding it for you, Brian. <laughs> yeah, I'm not in the top one percent. I think you are, but, but uh, not me. But uh, that one is, is you took it off the market, right? Uh, I haven't followed it that closely, but is that is that something that you'll bring out this year? You think? Um, we, we we did have a tender for uh, an apartment in, in Opus, and we did get some bids. Uh, they weren't quite enough. Um, we're very happy to actually hold on to that that, that property. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it is a special site, it's a special. Uh, building um, it lets well we have uh, we have now uh, seven tenants uh, among the twelve buildings. Um, if the market 's uh, right, we will think about selling a couple but it 's always been our intention to keep some of those units uh, it 's a it's very prestigious product it gives i think a certain cachet to what our properties does in terms of quality of build um, and i say it 's a prime asset we 're not so concerned about you know when we sell it 
that might be sold eventually to a wealthy um, mainlander. Uh, do you market extensively in China? Do you send teams into China looking for high net worth individuals? No, we don't. Um, I mean, as you well know, I mean, many wealthy individuals in China do visit Hong Kong frequently. And so uh, I think we get brand recognition from the, the flow of visitors into Hong Kong. Uh, and of course, we are, um, you know, increasingly on the on the map in China. I mean, we have uh, six developments uh, underway, uh, three are operating, and increasingly people know the name Taiku, not just for Cathay Pacific and the airline or for Taiku Sugar, but also for Taiku Properties. So our name is getting established there. We don't need to do any direct marketing. Does the China macro uh, story play into your thinking a lot? Uh, are you concerned about, let's say, the slowdown in growth in China? Does that impact on what you do uh, in Hong Kong? I know you also um, have China projects, but what about in Hong Kong? Um, actually, what's happening in China, of course, I think most people would see is encouraging. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult task to sort of transform the economy from you know, sort of capital formation-led to consumption-led. It's, it, it can't be an overnight process. And so it's not surprising that as they move forward with that, with that strategy that you know, growth does, does uh, diminish. Uh, we're still talking about levels of 7 you know, to 8%. Um, for what we do, which is principally you know, retail malls, um, that's still, you know, a very attractive proposition. And as, as I pointed out, I mean, the economy is moving toward more consumption-led. Uh, hopefully that plays into what we're doing, you know, with our retail business. Let me put the same question to you that I put to a lot of analysts about timing. Are you concerned at all that we might be seeing dramatic slowing in China at a time when the U.S. may be picking up and we may see interest rates going up sometime next year. And that juxtaposition of a weaker economy out here with higher interest rates driven because of the peg uh, uh, by maybe rates going up in the in the U.S., does that pose a lot of problems for planning here? Um, I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, we're very much in it for the long haul. I mean, we're an investment-led business. Uh, of course, the cycle, you know, is going to have an impact on, on appetite to buy land at any point in time. But as a generalization, uh, we're not so concerned about what happens to markets. As you say, it, it, the environment you depict, it's quite likely there will be volatility in markets. Uh, and the, I think the, the big indirect issue for us in that regard is that it undermines confidence. And if you undermine confidence, people spend less and therefore you don't visit the malls, etc. Uh, but of course, we all know that confidence can bounce back. So it's not something which fundamentally changes our strategy. But tactically, you've got to be aware of the risks of those things coming about. So you seem like one of these young guys, you know, very fit, very confident about the future. Um, what keeps you up at night? Uh, I've got three children, Brian. I mean, uh, <laughs> you as a parent will know that uh, they keep you up at night, actually, either because they're sort of playing loud music. Oh, come on, business-wise. What, uh, <laughs> what, 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 what really does um, give you some pause for thought? Uh, I mean, there's nothing, um, nothing that will upset the SFC talking about. Well, we're concerned about this, and we watch it closely. Well, the concerns, I guess, uh, are born out of, you know, what is clearly a changing economy in China. And, of course, some challenges here in Hong Kong that the government face, which um, have brought about, um, obviously, a lot more intervention in markets. As a generalization, businessmen don't really like government interfering in markets. It does provide distortion. Um, I understand government's position. They've got some serious challenges, uh, and there are some, you know, difficult trade-offs. And that that is a worry in the context that they might go too far in terms of getting involved in the marketplace and, and distort pricing and uh, certainly impact our investment plans. So the headline reads, Swire Properties, nervous about Hong Kong governance and uh, worried about the China macro story. <laughs> <laughs> Not governance. Not quite no, governance exactly. is fine. Governance uh, right. is fine. Gov government inter interaction in markets is always a little bit of a concern. Let me make note of that. Governance is fine. Okay. <laughs> um, does it worry you when you see something like Li Ka-shing selling a stake in Hong Kong Terminal 8 West? 
pretty sizable stake, um, $2.5 billion, uh, seems to indicate that he's stepping a little further back from Hong Kong. Does that concern you? Uh, well, I think Li Koxing's businesses have always been known for being opportunistic in terms of uh, you know, they are, are very well regarded traders. Um, so he's a trader and you're an investor. I mean, that, that's obviously a little bit simplistic, but um, certainly, you know, Hutchison, Chen Kong are, are better known for or trading in and out of assets where they see opportunity. Yeah, it's true. Okay, um, just a final question, I guess, uh, if you could kind of just summarize um, the overall uh, outlook uh, for this year. Uh, you say that you're reasonably uh, confident. Uh, is there anything out there that, um, you know, makes you, you know, take heart in, in the future? Um, I take heart really from um, the fact that we've been able to continue to invest over the course of the last 18 months. And we talked about Taiku Place, but we bought a number of plots of land in Hong Kong. Um, we've signed a, a recent joint venture agreement to build something in Dalian. Uh, so what gives me heart is that we've invested, I think, sensibly. I mean, not particularly aggressively, but sensibly, which should provide good organic growth from you know what we believe is our core competence, principally building shopping malls and apartments. Okay, Martin, thanks very much. Oh, just one final question. Um, given the mall um, stakes that you have, I mean, so many um, big shopping centers, uh, does this um, explosion of e-commerce in, in China worry you? And might that happen here? It does. Um, it's a bit naive to say that this is not going to take market share from existing malls. Um, as ever with, with shopping, it, it, you've got to see it as entertainment. So therefore, you've got to attract people to your malls with something which differentiates. Uh, it's, of course, a challenge, but one we're, we're up for. Okay, Martin, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Martin Cubbon, Chief Executive Officer of Swire Properties. Money for nothing. The time is 17 minutes after 8. So we look at properties and real estate there. Thought we might take a look at banks and talk a little bit more about the NPC. Banks' reputations have suffered since the global financial crisis. This is happening in ways that would appear to have been beyond repair. But a new report by EY, the form we used to call Ernst & Young, indicates that things could be turning around. And we're joined on this program now by Keith Pogson, Senior Partner for Financial Services at EY. Good, good morning to you, Keith. Good, mo good morning, Brian. Yeah, good to have you here. Um, that's a very interesting uh, way of looking at things. That uh, And I heard something on NPR the other day that also bore this out, that uh, J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs had fallen out of the top 40 for um, firms' uh, reputation among graduating seniors uh, from universities. I'm not sure if uh, this is the same survey that you've done, but it does. But, but the survey also said that in the past year, they had come back up to the top 10. So are you seeing something like that? Well, exactly so. We went out and we talked to more than 30,000 consumers on the streets around the world. And if you're a consumer down on the street, banking's got a lot better. Um, you used to be very much in the, uh, you know, queue up in the branch. The guy sort of lines you up to sell you the product that the bank wants to sell. Now, very much akin to the Apple and Google of the world. It's all about the customer. The customer has control. They're online. They're on an ATM. They're on the telephone, whatever it happens to be. And the, um, the customer's having sort of tailored service for them. But what about the, um, you know, the fallout from the financial crisis, the fact that, uh, you know, banks were blamed uh, in many quarters uh, for the severe crisis and the fact that they had to be bailed out. And you only need look around to see that the bonuses are rising back up again in the tens of uh, millions of dollars for top executives. 
Absolutely, and there's still a lot of social pressure out there across the region. We're still seeing that. Australia's got a, a review going on of the whole financial system, looking at what's good, what's bad, and so on. And I think we're going to see a lot of political backlash still for some time to come. What are some of the other perceptions that have changed about, uh, about the banking industry? Well, I think it's become a lot more about technology. Um, customers actually now want to self-serve. They're not very keen to actually go to branches. And if they do go to a branch, they actually want to have a, uh, you know, get advice. So you're going to see consumer banks and and what a consumer bank is about as a much, much more online experience, much more remote experience. And, um, you know, I think bank branches are going to look a lot more like the Apple store. Yes, well, we see that happening a lot in uh, China. Every day we read about uh, the uh, products being put out by Tencent and Alibaba. In fact, we'll be speaking with uh, Frederick Ockvist in a moment uh, about um, about Tencent's uh, move on the e-commerce front, not so much on uh, e-banking. But it, it is happening. Uh, but there's also... Uh, you know, a massive shadow banking industry in China. And there are concerns about trusts going uh, going bad and defaulting and, and corporate bonds as well. Uh, what can you tell us about what's happening inside the banking industry in China? It's a pretty complex situation. Um, the government's got to manage growth. You know, we've, we just heard Martin Cubbon talk about growth as well. Um, you know, rule of thumb, you need to have two to two and a half times loan growth to match GDP growth. So that means the Chinese banking system needs to grow at somewhere around 20% for the next year. Um, what you want is you want good quality growth, though. You want the right loans being made. So the uh, the bond default that we just saw in China is probably a good thing because it sends a message to the banking system that not, not all good, not all investments are good investments and be skeptical, be aware, make the right sort of decisions. Um, how's, how's the perception of banks in China, just out of curiosity? Um, for the man on the street, it's actually pretty good, um, surprisingly good, surprisingly confident. However, the, um, the situation is very dynamic. Obviously, you touched on Tencent and Alibaba. Um, you know, we've seen $65 billion go into these things in the last three, four months. Um, and the banks are concerned. They're concerned about the liquidity. They're concerned about their customers. And looking at the comments from uh, Li Keqiang, the premier yesterday, uh, he, he was saying that um, you just need to have defaults if you're going to better price in risk. Um, from your standpoint there, the perch at EY, uh, is that something that the banks and also consumers can get used to or will they get tremendously scared? over one or two defaults? It, it's a tightrope. On one side, you've got this perception that the state will bail out whatever's happening in the economy. And the other side of, of the coin, you've got people just, you know, historically lending quite at quite high levels because, you know, they think this is almost free money. They're kind of out there just pumping away on the, on the other side of this. So, you know, Premier Lee's exactly right. We need to have some you know, education in the market. The defaults create that education. But it has to be done in a way that doesn't frighten the customers away, frighten the banks away from the credit extension they need to make, but brings the discipline into the process and system. So it's finding the balance. Do you have recommendations uh, about how banks can improve trust with consumers? Um, Absolutely. It's, it's, it's about the way in which they interact with the customer. Obviously, it's, uh, you know, from a technology standpoint, it's about the reliability of the offering that the ATMs don't fall over and the online presence is there all the time. It's about looking after customer information. It's about protecting people's data. 
Um, those are actually increasingly important topics for consumers on the street. We just did a story um, last week about these um, assurance uh, schemes that are sold as saving products by the banks quite aggressively here in Hong Kong. Um, that's a kind of lack of transparency in that people don't uh, know exactly what they're paying out in terms of commissions and things. Uh, is that an area of transparency that could be a lot better? Uh, it's it's changing globally. The the UK brought out some rules recently around uh, the retail disclosure requirements for the products to explain to the customer what's happening, and it's created a real change. Customers are now finding out more about products, and you know the banks who are selling products with high margins have become a little bit uh, uncomfortable. Back to the political whims that we were talking about earlier, and the banks being seen as uh, still sort of social pariahs to some extent. They've got a conscience now. Yeah. So, Keith, would you say that based on your research and the survey and looking out, uh, do you think that this um, continues on the mend? I mean, will banks become, um, you know, a, a, a more comfortable place to do business for people over the next year? Or will they continue to shy away and actually prefer to do more Internet banking? Well, it, it's finding the right balance between the two. Um, the customer is more and more. Um, going online, they're more and more at, on the smartphone, whatever it happens to be. And the banks can only sell product if they actually get to talk to the human beings. So, you know, our report, one of the, the sort of strange things about our report is it actually suggests that you get extra business that if there are problems and you fix them well, you can actually excite customers to give you more business, build that trust to your point. Um, and so, you know, paradoxically, um, the banks are backing away from the human interaction, not because they want to, but because the customer is demanding it. They're more self-service. Um, but that reduces the opportunities for the banks to sell so that's and to a drive real, business. A real, real challenge. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Keith, thank you very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Keith Pogson, the full title, Senior Partner, Financial Services, Asia-Pacific Global Assurance Leader, Banking and Capital Markets at EY. <laughs> Wow, that sounds like something exciting is coming next, and it is. Frederick Ockvis, founder of China RAI, joins us on the program. Uh, Frederick, good morning. Welcome back to Money for Nothing. So we want. Yeah, very good to have you um, on the on the program. Uh, we thought we might speak a little bit about Tencent and its move into e-commerce and challenging Alibaba more. Um, taking this fifteen percent stake in JD.com. Perhaps we can also talk a little bit about uh, the. Um, shadow banking uh, products and, and uh, wealth management products. But first, the move on JD.com. A smart move, it seems. Yeah, what it seems like is that uh, Tencent has decided to sort of outsource their previous e-commerce ventures to JD because there's a couple of uh, small companies from Tencent involved in the deal as well. And uh, it seems to be a part of like a larger M&A strategy from Tencent where they're buying up companies that will complement the WeChat or WeChat platform very, very well. So what excites me the most is you see sort of a clear strategic path that Tencent seems to be on in creating this added value for WeChat. But are they overshooting a little bit? I mean, they're, they're rushing into Alibaba's turf. Now they're rushing into uh, Internet banking. Uh, one worries, if you're, if you're a, a shareholder, I would think, one worries about this relentless speed that they're, um, that they're on. Yeah, I mean, when, when you look at the history of a lot of the Chinese companies, they tend to be very, very entrepreneurial. And the reason why they're spread across many businesses has often been that they've seen an opportunity in one business and they immediately go for it. 
because of the high growth levels in China, it has been quite successful in the past. The question, of course, is will it continue to be? Um, it's hard to say, but it seems like because all of these areas tie in so well to a central theme with Tencent, which is the voice and platform, I would think that there is a strategic advantage for them there and something that they can actually leverage. And if we could just talk for a moment about the uh, Internet financing and selling wealth management products, uh, we know that the Yui Bao from uh, Alibaba seems to have gone, um, you know, quite, quite well, very, very successful. Some people questioning uh, whether or not it could be as big as they say, some 400 billion. But how is Tencent moving on that front? How successful are they? we're really close to where Alibaba is as of yet. But they're moving on, and they've both been granted these uh, new private banking licenses, so we're going to see a lot more movement on that. I think it's... We can certainly say that they've been very successful in raising money. All of these um, internet finance companies have been. But when we come to um, the question of how, how successful will they be long-term, what type of investments are they actually making... It's a little bit harder to say. Um, we have had a couple of defaults now in some of the wealth management products from the banks in China, which probably goes the confidence in their um, in their offerings a little bit, which might actually drive more money towards the internet companies. You you wonder you you wonder though if they're promising six to seven percent, where they're getting that, what they're investing it in, maybe buying. Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, because the deposit rate is only 3.3% uh, for, I think, a one-year CD. And they say they're in the interbank market. But, you know, interbank rates, um, who knows exactly how transparent that is. Yeah. I mean, it was an interesting situation there for a while. And uh, the liquidity shortage actually, to some extent, caused by all the money flowing into the Internet companies, wealth management products, caused the interbank rates to spike, which then, of course... <laughs> The, uh, the internet companies would invest into. So they were creating a shortage that they were then investing into, um, which was a very interesting and probably quite profitable business strategy. Um, but as for the longer term, how do you achieve 6%? It's a good question, and um, I would love to see a little bit more transparency there. Okay, just finally, back to JD.com. Uh, what does that company in particular uh, bring to Tencent? Uh, it's taken a 15% stake in the company, so it won't be driving what they do, and that's a whopping $215 million. But what does it actually get, Tencent? Well, Tencent gets a growing company with very good distribution knowledge. Um, they have some of the quickest distribution in major cities in, um, in China. They will also integrate very quickly with WeChat from what we've been told. And uh, so we'll get full sort of e-commerce abilities in WeChat with quick deliveries. Uh, in most major Chinese cities, they can do deliveries within three hours of the products that you, okay. that you order. All right, Frederick, we'll have to save it for another day as well. This will continue to move and move. Uh, thank you very much. Frederick Okvix, the founder of China RAI. Markets uh, moving down. The Nikkei down 365 points. Looks like another tough day. Australia down 1.3% in Seoul. The main index there down six tenths of a percent. Oil prices 107.40 and gold moving up to 1,376. Weather today mainly cloudy with some light rain patches expected. Maximum temperature about 20. Cool tomorrow, milder during the day. Sunny periods later. 
The news with Samantha Butler. The interim prime minister of Ukraine, Arseniy Tsenyuk, has told the UN Security Council that his country is the victim of aggression from Russia. Mr. Yatsenyuk said it was unacceptable in the 21st century to resolve any situation with military force and he urged Russia to pull back its troops from Crimea and start real negotiations. Addressing the Russian delegate directly, he asked him to clarify whether or not Moscow wanted war. Vitaly Cherkin gave this reply. I'm going to respond directly to a direct question put to me by Mr. Yatsenyuk. Russia does not want war and nor do the Russians. And I'm convinced that Ukrainians don't want this either. There have been violent clashes between rival groups of protesters in the eastern Ukrainian city of Donetsk. One person was killed and a number were wounded when hundreds of demonstrators chanting pro-Russian slogans are said to have confronted a rival rally by people opposed to the Russian military intervention in Crimea. The White House says the search for a Malaysian airliner that disappeared on its way to Beijing on Saturday may be moving further west to the